Hello, and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrett Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. Mergers and acquisitions in crypto are on the rise. And this is true for both traditional company mergers, as well as mergers between crypto protocols, where two blockchain projects combine. To discuss the crypto merger and acquisition landscape, I recently spoke with Eric Risley of Architect Partners, a California firm that specializes in crypto mergers. Eric and I discussed a range of topics, including how crypto valuations are determined. We dug into some notable recent deals, including the sale of Facebook's shuttered Libra stablecoin project to Silvergate Bank for $200 million. And we also discussed why we're likely to see more mergers between blockchain protocols in the months to come. Well, Eric, welcome to the Blockchain.com podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we have a standard question. We ask all our guests, how you earned your first ever money? <laughs> and in what currency? Uh, yeah, well, it, you know, I'm old enough that, uh, that this, the, I guess the fiat dollar, let's start there. And uh, I think it was making cucumber sandwiches for my grandmother, who used to pay us a dollar per. Which that is I a, uh, don't, a, a I don't, yeah, yeah unique. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that that many people in the U.S. make uh, cucumber sandwiches. She seemed to be fond of those on whey bread, um, scarily. Um, so that was that was probably the first place. And then, of course, I was the requisite paper boy. The good news that it was a weekly, so that made it a lot easier. And then, but the bad news is it was in Rockport, Massachusetts, which actually has real four real seasons and the wintertime is a little cold. Well, I, I think the cucumber sand, sandwich story might be the most wholesome uh, first ever money story uh, we've, we've heard on the podcast. So congrats on that. Well, yeah. um, before we get into today, today's topic of uh, crypto M&A, let's, let's first uh, hear a bit more about yourself, uh, you know, your background. And, uh, you know, of course, how you first learned about crypto and, and what brought you into this space. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I am uh, part of a firm called Architect Partners, and we are specialists and focus exclusively on crypto mergers and acquisitions and helping companies uh, in the sector raise late stage uh, private capital. And um, the way I got here was a uh, really starting in as a tech investment banker uh, many years ago. Um, I started my career at a, at a tech, what I call a tech boutique, the, doing investment banking work for um, technology companies and actually started the practice um, on the West Coast in Silicon Valley back in 1993 for, for the firm. The firm's name is Oppenheimer. And um, and then ended up getting recruited over to Bank of America Securities uh, to run the software investment and corporate banking practice. So for uh, for now, <laughs> multiple decades have really worked with uh, emerging growth, disruptive technology-driven businesses, the, the management teams and the boards to help them, you know, both raise capital and execute on their strategic initiatives via uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, our sort of bread and butter of what we do at Architect Partners is is uh, is generally helping 
the sellers as opposed to the buyers. Um, although occasionally we find ourselves on the buy side as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we basically bet our careers in our firm on this thing called crypto and we're pretty much all in at this point, but, uh, yeah, it's been 30 years to get here and there's some really interesting characteristics of crypto that make us super excited as a, a firm, which we can talk about. Uh, but that's, that's sort of my own personal journey. And we've got a dozen people here and each have their own personal journeys, um, that, uh, are similar to that and actually some quite different. And, and tell us about when you first started uh, working on crypto deals and, and your and your first deal. Yeah. So the the first deal was actually helping securitize um, acquire a broker dealer um, with the intent, their intent to become regulatory compliant. And for those that know securitize, they uh, they are one of the leaders around the notion of a security token. And the notion that um, you can tokenize all kinds of different assets, and some of those assets are going to be clearly falling into the realm of a security. And so, how do you do that properly and, and with regulatory guidance and compliance? So that was a deal we did. Um, I don't know; it's probably eighteen months ago. Um, but where we first started um, it was actually five, six years ago. We thought that. M&A may be a proper entry point, and this was before the 2017 bubble um, and all the capital being raised through ICOs. Um, but it was from an M&A perspective, it's very, very slow. Um, so we've quickly realized that the best place to perhaps start is to really understand what was going on with these ICOs, which, you know, from a guy who comes out of Wall Street and spends his life being focused on being regulatory compliant, um, that was a, uh, a frightening uh, occurrence in many respects. Um, so we thought we could help maybe bring some professionalism around that, but quickly realized that that was a tough one for a regulated broker-dealer to be involved with. Um, so we've been kicking around in this area for quite some time. And of course, from a personal perspective, I've been interested even longer than that and owned crypto assets in the early days. Um, but it was a, it was sort of an evolution for sure, and really over the last eighteen to twenty four months is when we've gotten much more fully engaged in sort of all in. Right. Well, we've uh, we've been kind of watching uh, crypto M and A kind of grow here for for a, a while now, and you know I imagine I I you know a long long time ago worked in M and A myself and and looking at the landscape in crypto with hundreds of exchanges and you know, thousands of tokens. I mean, just the sheer quantity of, of different players. I mean, to me, it looks like a very ripe <laughs> environment mm. for, for M&A. And I, I wondered if you could speak about the dynamics in this space, why we're, we're starting to see more M&A uh, in, in crypto. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, let's, let's start with the entrepreneurial activity, which we know is, you know, it's fair to say sort of off the charts, this, this sector is getting incredible amounts of capital to invested into it. Um, our count in 2021 was there was 27 billion dollars of of private capital that got invested into the sector in 1,800 companies. So I don't know that I've I, I haven't looked back on the specifics in the history, but you know we like to think about it in, in, with history in mind, 
that gives us context. But from a sector, emerging sector perspective, it, it has to rival the emergence of the internet. And I'm sure much, much, much more capital has been deployed in many, many more companies. So um, to, to me, that's the precursor, entrepreneurship activity. And of course, there have been great successes and there's now, I think, 41 public companies um, that uh, are in the crypto sector in some form or fashion. So the, the, while the industry is very young, um, there are some now established players. There are now lots of really interesting young companies that are being built. And you've got the third group, <clears throat> which are the, we'll call it the established players that are coming in at, at, into this area from outside of crypto. Um, so now you've got a very large acquirer base and a very large group of targets. And that's the precondition necessary for M&A to start to take off. And of course, having fundamental businesses working and being built and scaling. Um, so last year, M&A was up by 200% from the previous year in terms of number of deals. Uh, about 174, well, 174 deals by our count were, were completed last year in the crypto sector. That was up from around 50 for the previous couple of years. And about $8 billion of consideration was traded. It was way more than that because lots, a lot of times it's not actually disclosed. But, you know, it's becoming something quite real. And we see this as really very, very, very early stage in terms of the creation of the M&A market here. And um, next few years would be quite interesting. Yep. And yeah, th those numbers are incredible. And thanks for uh, for listing those off. I mean, it's just uh, to think back, you know, for those of us who have been in the crypto space, you know, for, you know, in my case, you know, coming up on a decade here, uh, you know, that that number of deals, the the size is just uh, just remarkable. But uh, one thing you haven't mentioned in terms of the context is kind of the regulatory environment. And, and I'm thinking about especially more traditional players starting to look around at, at crypto companies, adding crypto lines of business. You know, we, we, we haven't seen, correct me if I'm wrong, a ton of that to date, but uh, I would imagine that is, and it's been more crypto to crypto kind of acquisition, uh, correct? That that is generally accurate, Garrett. Um, I guess where where we are beginning to see what we call crossover deals. Um, first of all, we're seeing uh, as as we talk to various parties out there associated with both our particular transactions and or just our normal course talking to big established companies. That they're all interested. I mean, and, you know. They're all looking at this. They and what does all mean? You know, it's the banks, it's the payment guys, it's anybody on in Wall Street. Um, all, that entire group is spending a lot of time thinking about this. Some have begun to move. You know, a great example is Mastercard acquiring CipherTrace, uh, which gets back to the regulatory compliance side. Um, so it's 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 the conversations are happening. We are getting bids on companies from established, uh, legacy, we'll call them legacy companies, on deals that we're, we're involved with. 
Now, they may not be the one that prevails because you get a little bit of a valuation gap right now. Um, but it is very real. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a bank of any form, if you're a securities firm of any form, if you're in the business of payments in any form, you need to be paying attention to this and have some initiatives, whether you're going all in or you're putting a foot in, you need to be there. You need to be thinking about this. Yep. And and just in terms of the regulatory environment and, and the clarity that has been growing uh, in, in, you know, well, from the beginning, since going back to 2013 and FinCEN's original guidance on, on Bitcoin and virtual currencies to, to today. And where are we at in your mind? I mean, how how much more regulatory clarity uh, would help the M&A sector and, and traditional players uh, be more active? Or do you think we're already there and there's sufficient clarity for, you know, like you mentioned, the MasterCards to come in and do major acquisitions? Uh, well, I, I think there's lots, there's a lot of clarity that it, it needs to be developed. Um, it's, it's, it's tricky going. Um, I listened to the galaxy, uh, earnings report yesterday. Uh, you know, their, 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 uh, their, their earnings release call and, you know, they spend a lot of time thinking about how do we do things in a regulatory compliant fashion. And even the SEC, they're trying to get public in the NASDAQ and they're, you know, dealing with a lot of topics that the SEC are focusing on. Um, so that's that's the, the disruptor who's having to deal with that. We all know that, you know, the Coinbase's and Kraken's, et cetera, of the world, the big exchanges and, and, and trading platforms spend a tremendous amount of time and focus to try to make sure they're staying within regulatory compliance. We're seeing things like BlockFi, you know, getting slapped for um, some of their products. Um, I think Voyager just got a, got slapped for some of their lending products. We'll see a lot more of that. Um, and so if you're a big bank, um, you are in preservation of, of brand mode. You are not going to put yourself in a position where your brand is harmed for something new. But ultimately, they're going to have to be in this business as it matures to defend their turf. And um, so I anticipate it will take it will take several years plus to get the regulatory pieces in place. In the meantime, you think of it as a risk spectrum. Those that are all in in crypto are just going to make it work. They're going to figure it out and get buffeted by the regulatory uh, changes and adaptations that occur. The more established guys are going to pick their spots, make some experiments, put some money to do that, but not in a brand-threatening way. And um, you know, it will just evolve. I don't see, I don't see there to be a single event that all of a sudden everything falls into place. It's just not that way. Yeah. What let's let's talk about some of the the drivers of of MA. And and um, you know, I'm just wondering how much uh you know talent acquisition and the challenge that traditional players <laughs> have had from from my perspective, uh, and I saw this going back to the 2015 rise of distributed ledger technology in this 
interest in, in trying to build kind of blockchain powered financial services without Bitcoin. And the difficulty a lot of banks and, and traditional players had in attracting blockchain developers and talent, how, how much of this kind of inability to grow organically, attracting you know top developers of, of blockchain technology to a traditional bank is, is driving interest and in, in do you see continuing to drive interest in acquiring crypto companies? Well, it is it is one of the drivers of interest, um, but you, I don't believe you just put ten or fifteen or thirty developers um, into a firm like a bank and necessarily uh, create anything of of substance. Um, that it, it's that's nice to have, but you know, large organizations are not necessarily known for innovation for a whole host of reasons, partially of which there's a lot of established political power on what is. And when you have a, uh, a quote, innovative group within a large firm, you know, they're taking on a lot of, uh, they're taking a lot of political f- flack. And so, you know, the developers are, uh, are a necessary element, but you do need to have a very strong, very, I'll call it visionary. I'm not sure that's right, but both visionary and practical team within a large organization who have the political will and power along with the developers to actually build something. And that's, that's a very difficult task in my experience. Um, and so that's where M and a can come in and with the larger established firms, we'll just use the bank as the example you used. Um, generally the right way for them to do things in my view is buy a product or capability with the team that actually built it and can implement it. Hopefully they've implemented it and actually established commercial viability of it. Um, And then you bring that into the organization, the large organization, and you build it from there. Um, So in the notion of the crossover deal, the established, big established, the bank in our case, and the young guys who are building, you know, crypto payments or whatever it happens to be, um, it's better for that target to have a product, to be in the market if it can be, ready for a prime time, so to speak, and then it goes over. Just buying a, a developers, I, I don't think makes a lot of sense personally. Yeah. Now, where we do see that is the crypto crypto stuff, where you know Coinbase is buying. These these organizations sometimes purely for the talent, um, uh, and sometimes for a combination of the talent and um, and the product that has been built. One one deal that comes to mind that we were not involved with was, but was I think falls into this category was Bison Trails, where you know Bison Trails had begun to develop a staking business. Um, Coinbase needed that staking business, and um, but the, the team there, by virtue of how they approached building the staking business, there were a whole bunch of other products that could be built using a similar methodology. Um, and they just had a really talented team. And so you can, what you'll see is that it was bought for the staking business, but the team that built the staking business um, are going to be doing a whole bunch of other things within Coinbase over, the t- over time. And, you know, and that 
provides value beyond just the core business they 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 built and had sold. Um, yeah, and, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought up. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that specific example because I wanted to turn to some of the more notable deals uh, in the in the crypto M and A space. What both ones maybe you've been involved with and others that have really caught your attention have been interesting. Definitely want to talk about um, the sale of of the Libra. Um, stablecoin project that Facebook uh, launched, that the sale of those assets to Silvergate and others um, yep. that have, have stood out to you is interesting and 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 significant. What are mm. a few examples of yeah notable deals um, that you would highlight? Well, I'll start with one that we were, have not been involved with, but is are very intri- intriguing. Are these um, cross protocol mergers, which? is from an M&A professional's perspective, you know, we're used to dealing with organizations that have have a hierarchy of decision-making, they're real companies, you know, inks, um, with management teams and boards of directors. And you, when one company buys the other, they're buying ownership, they're buying equity. And in these protocol mergers, What's most striking is that almost none of that exists. You 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 have leadership, but it's informal and and quote distributed, not truly necessarily, but everybody seems to have a vote. Um, the there is no ownership stake being transferred. Um, and you're really what you're really trying to do is get communities of, of like-minded people who've chosen to spend time to build. Um, on that protocol to combine forces, um, but without the same kinds of mechanisms that sort of for, that create in a traditional merger that that create that is the catalyst to actually get everybody to co- coordinate and 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 sing by the same tune. So there's there's a whole host of different in- interesting issues there um, around what does M and A mean, how is it actually accomplished when there is a consideration traded from one token to the other. How do you know it's fair? Um, there's probably a thousand different legal topics to discuss that I'm not prepared or, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer um, that need to be dealt with. And then perhaps most importantly is how do you actually get this now combined organization to sing from the same hymn? And We've seen um, a couple of deals in the last year. You know, Polycom's, Polycom's done a couple of those. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how they play out. And those are large deals. Those were multi-hundred million dollar transactions um, that are fascinating to watch. Yeah, so that, I, I, that's sort of I, one absolutely. Yeah, Go, please continue. Yeah. Um, I think there's been, uh, from a category perspective, in terms of functionality, I mentioned Bison Trails. Um, another deal that was done in the same area was Kraken's acquisition of Staked. Uh, staking is a big deal. And it seems to us that the aggregators of assets are the natural provider of the services. And that's why a Kraken and a Coinbase are in that um now through these acquisitions, both of those deals were highly valued. Um, in the case of Coinbase, our rough estimate was that was a, a four hundred fifty million dollar deal. 
And while we don't know the value of uh, Kraken staked, it, it, we believe it may be a, in the order of a billion. So, you know, just aggregate transaction sizes and the importance of the underlying capability. Um, those are a couple that, that pop out. And, you know, it's all about, in that case, it's frankly all about Ethereum moving over to proof of stake because that's where the transaction volumes are. Yeah. And, and Eric, for those less familiar with M&A, can you just kind of quickly um, explain why sometimes transaction values are disclosed, why they're not, what are the incentives for disclosing or not disclosing uh, sizes and in, in deal terms, and, and when the when these terms have to be disclosed? So let's start with the have to, because that's a nice bright line. Um, if you're a public company and it's a material transaction, it has to be disclosed. Now, what is a material transaction? Um, rule of thumb, 10% of, of value, equity value or other measures like cash on hand. So if it's a very, very large deal, if it's Coinbase and it's a very, very large deal, they may have to disclose it. If it's a smaller organization, even if it's a $100 million deal, they may have to disclose it. So public companies run by a, a different set of rules. Um, often what you'll see is that they don't disclose it up front, but by virtue of the reporting they have to do for the SEC, it comes out later. And it's usually in the footnotes to the financial statements, and you got to go dig for it. And often it's sort of hidden even there. But then you can figure it out a little bit later. Um you know, why disclose versus not disclose? Often, you know, often it gets leaked by the seller because they want to, you know, it's a, uh, a, a sort of a measure of success. So if somebody sells a company they started three years ago for 500 million or more, you know, it's hard not to talk about that. So... Uh, right. So, so in other words, if, if the, the number gets out, you know, people are often proud, want somebody to know, but if it's a uh, hush, hush, that might be uh, an indication that they sold for less than, uh, you know, maybe a previous valuation round or, or not as uh, excited for, for others to know what the price was. Yeah, it could be. And, you know, listen, there are deals that get, that are never disclosed and they're hard to find out that are great outcomes, but from a seller's perspective. So it just it just depends. Um often things end up leaking in some form or fashion. You've got listen, you've got you've got a lot of people around the table. You've got the venture capitalists who put money in, you got the management team, you got the buyer, you got, you know, lawyers and bankers aren't usually sources of the leak, but um you know, it, it and it just sort of finds its way out. Uh but yeah, it's it, it it can be hard to find um, sometimes. We don't know them all for sure, but we do our best to track it. And we actually you know, compile this stuff on a weekly basis and do our best to have the most up-to-date information available. Yeah. Um, so just speaking of valuation levels um, the and coming back to the, the, the Libra stablecoin um, yeah. asset sale to Silvergate, um, I believe the number that I saw was around roughly 200 million um, was paid by Silvergate for um, primarily technology, as I understood it. But I wondered if you could talk about the amount that was paid and what was purchased, because it 
it kind of, I, I was a little personally surprised to see such a high number reported for, for what I believe to be mostly open source or what I thought was mostly open source technology that had been developed by the Libra project. But it sounds like there was um, a compliance technology piece that was not open source that may have been an important part of um, mm-hmm. that had gone through some regulatory vetting even that may have been an important part of that deal. Yes. So uh, the the value is roughly around that number, 200 million. And I say roughly, there's a there's an equity component that floated depending on the stock of uh, stock price of Silvergate. Um, and we did advise uh, what was named DM at the time. It was the original Leaper project um, in the sale of that um, of the business. Um, you know what what was there and why that price. Um, why that price is pretty simple. That's what Silvergate was willing to pay. And we conducted a process where we had engaged in a number of conversations and had multiple parties expressing interest. Um, and that's, that's where it, 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 that's how it played out. Um, you know, our job is to create actionable alternatives for our clients. And um, in the case of sell side M&A, it's making sure that we're speaking to the right parties, communicating to them uh, clearly what the what what the business is that we're selling, how that impacts their business and the potential that could could come from the combination. Um, And in that situation, um, that's 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 where we ended up. So. You know, is that a high price for what was there? Um, most people would say yes, because um, fundamentally, what what DM represents is is open source code that you can go into GitHub right now and download. Um, so, you know, anybody can access that. Uh, in addition to that, there are uh, some elements of proprietary IP. And, and software code that I would say in a simplistic fashion surrounds that, that provides a, um, we'll call it regulatory and compliance capabilities that are, is not sort of just core to the open source code. And on top of that is, you know, a couple of years of intense engagement with the regulators as to what the best or we'll put it a different way, what the what the most uh, optimal approach would be to be able to achieve regulatory buy-in and, and compliance. And as we know, um, stable coins generally are under the microscope. And what DM represented was a stable coin and the underlying blockchain and payment platform to allow for payments utilizing that stable coin um, and much like a, a circle, which sort of comes at it from a different way, but uh, fundamentally it's a, it's a platform to enable payments. And um, with, with, with Facebook or meta now involved, it was very threatening um, to the regulators. And I think still remains threatening to the regulators as a category, stable coins, payments, so on. So the, 
and and to be very clear, um, the the talent that was part of DM um, did not transfer with it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah, no, so, they've they've already gone on to do some uh, other things that are making making headlines. Um, so, just because we're getting close to the end of the time, I, I wanted to, to ask about valuations and how these are determined. You often represent the seller, so you'll be involved in you know, kind of making the case uh, for a particular valuation, you know, and, and the art and science of that. Can you walk us through that, that process? What are some of the key metrics, uh, you know, comparable, you know, kind of companies from, from my time in m and I know we're an important part oftentimes of, of you know, creating a, a, a kind of valuation framework and expectation of what's a reasonable price, but how do you go about justifying evaluation? What are some of the key metrics that are involved there? Yeah. So the, the, the way I think about it is we, we create a market. That's our job. What does that mean? It means getting uh, qualified acquirers to pay attention, get them interested, and allow them to know what they need to know to be able to make a business case within their own organizations as to how whatever we're selling can help them build their business. And that concept then translates into a business case that has numbers associated with it. And they will make their own determination as to, okay, if we can build this X business using this, what is that worth to us? So at the most fundamental level, um, that's how valuation occurs now it's all very amorphous <laughs> but but you know what does that mean um so what our job is to is to is to inform the acquirer in the words that they use in the business that they're running how this can impact their business and they can create a real business beyond that as if it's combined and do that with a bunch of different parties and get them to bid and then once we get bids, we work those bids depending on the interest levels. And, and often we're able to increase the number or improve the terms because it's not always just the number. So as I think about it from an abstract perspective, that's what we do. Now, how does that translate to valuation? Um, and what other tools can you use to, to justify various valuations? Yes, comparable deals are one way. If one company that's in staking, for example, you know, Bison Trails was bought by Coinbase for, you know, let's call it $450 million. If you're staked and you're talking to Kraken, are you going to point to that deal? And you're going to say, hey, we have more assets under management or, or assets staked than, than Coin Bison Trails did. That, uh, and our revenues are higher than them. And you really need this because you have you know, 40 billion and whatever assets that need to be, that have the ability to be staked, so on and so forth. And you're going to make the case that they're, you're worth more than that. And oh, by the way, there aren't that many of the companies like ours. So there's a scarcity argument. So it's a whole host of different factors, um, comparable deal sizes. You can also look um, to, you know, to if, if a company has $500 million invested, they're not likely to sell for $400 million. So you have to also think about, well, 
now you got $500 million of capital invested. What is it that will take the, our investors to actually be willing to sell? And that might be in a stress situation, 500 million. In a not so stressed situation, maybe 5 billion. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of different techniques and methodologies, and you can go even back to discounted cash flows and things like that. But you know, this, these are such early stage companies, so early in their life cycle that um, very often it's just a competitive environment drives valuation. Yeah. What, what are people willing to pay and how many exactly. buyers are at the table? Yeah. And that's, you know, listen, it, 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 th- this is our, our pitch is to, well, why, why do you hire a banker? I have somebody at the table. They're willing to pay me 300 million. It's like, is that the best offer you can get? Is that the optimal home? How can you make a decision without having uh, a, a broad market read and context of what your full set of options are? Almost all the deals that we get involved in already have a buyer at the table. It might be early in that discussion, but what doesn't exist is a set of options. And that's what we do. Yep. Well, we've uh, we've hit our time limit. So just to, to finish up, Eric, where can people go to learn uh, more about your firm and, and also just uh, track deals? Like what's a, a good source for following um m a activity in crypto in terms of you know what deals are being announced size details etc yeah so we part of what we do is we try we do we try very hard to provide information that's relevant to what we do day to day and convey that to the um to our our community of interested parties so um we track financings that occur every week we track m a transactions that occur every week and we track public company dynamics and market trading activity um, it gets published every week. And we distribute that to several thousand folks that are interested in that, that, that type of material. And that's in a summary form, hopefully consumable and easily understood. Um, and we also uh, uh, maintain the database that underlies that those reports um, that is actually accessible by anybody if, if, they, if they so choose. And then finally, when transactions occur of note, particularly on the M&A side, uh, we, we publish information about that specific deal. We call those M&A alerts. And then finally, uh, around different subsectors, like, for example, um, data and data analytics uh, is one example. Second example is, um, is trading platforms. We publish more in-depth research to sort of describe the opportunity who's doing what and where we're likely to see how it's likely to see this develop. So we have a lot of content that's on our website. Yep. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll put yeah. a link to your website in the show notes so people can, uh, can go there and sounds like just subscribe right through the website. Correct. Yep. Yep. That's correct. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate us and leave a review as it really helps boost our visibility to more listeners. Also, if you have a topic you'd like to see us cover, please get in touch at the following email address, podcast at blockchain.com. Once again, that's podcast at blockchain.com. Mm-hmm.